Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 11 of the Lawyerist podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy the show, we would greatly appreciate it if you took 30 seconds to give us a rating in iTunes. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. You can sign up for a free 14-day trial at callruby.com slash lawyerist, and Ruby will waive the setup fee if you decide to become a customer. So, Sam, there's a statistic that's been going around lately. Um, Kevin O'Keefe at Lexblog uh, wrote a post citing some statistics pulled together by Rocket Matter that claim that 40% of small law firms do not have a website. Um, I well, have we should not... clarify those st- that we have don't know how confident to be in those statistics, but we're not yeah, surprised Yeah, I, ha- I have it. not verified this data, but if we assume that it's true, that is a lot of small firms that do not have a website. Well, it, it's a lot, but it's also... It wouldn't be surprising to me if that were true. So it surprises me if that's true. That's just so many. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, it's just not a thing that a lot of lawyers emphasize. And I I thought Kevin's comments were interesting because he said in the essence of what he said was that some law firms just don't fundamentally don't need websites, which I, I don't know if I agree about that. I don't. I don't agree. His reasoning is that uh, some lawyers don't need websites because they have a, such a strong network and their referrals all come by word of mouth. And so what would they do with a the website? They don't want the so, business. So there's an easy answer, which is in the year 2015, getting a very nice and professional but simple one-page website can cost you dozens of dollars and no more than that. And even if your entire business that is very successful and makes you lots of money is all word of mouth from people you know in your town, people will still Google you and you want to be in control of what they find. Well, and it's it's simple stuff that maybe maybe lawyers haven't thought of, but you know, I I I don't look up other lawyers' websites because I want to hire them. I look them up because I want to call them. And maybe I want to refer them business and I've just lost their business card because I don't really keep track of business cards. Or maybe I want to know where their office is or how to put something in the mail to them. I mean, it's your your website has replaced your Yellow Pages listing. And it seems to me that not having one is kind of antisocial, but also it's not very friendly to the other biz- people who might need to do business with you, including your clients who might just need directions to your office. Right. And this is not speaking like this is nothing to say of using your website for marketing, Right. Everyone right. should everyone should have a site on the internet they control just to make sure that you can be found. Every business at least, absolutely. Yeah. It's a it's sort of it's as much a common courtesy thing as a marketing thing in my book. I agree. Wait, was it that easy? Yeah, I we think just it's agree that easy. and 
Oh, yeah. okay. Not everybody will agree with us, I'm sure. Especially the SEO experts who are going to come along and uh, express their fervent belief that the only purpose of a website is to convert leads into paying customers and um, thereby making it very obvious that they are a hammer and everything is a nail. But but um, even they think everyone needs a website, so well, we agree on that much. That's true. We are all one big happy family. <laughs> so... That said, today I'm interviewing someone not about websites. I'm interviewing someone who I'm tempted to call sort of a maverick uh, for his approach to the Luddite lawyers who he had to deal with as corporate counsel for Kia Motors. I'm talking, of course, about Casey Flaherty, and his interview starts now. So I'm here today with Casey Flaherty, the former general counsel of Kia and the current uh, founder of Cost Control LLC. And we're going to get into both of those things more right now. Hi, Casey. Hi, Sam. Uh, what I usually do on the podcast is get, let people give their own short bio. So why don't you tell us what you want to tell us about yourself? Well, first, I want to thank you for the promotion. I was never, I was never GC of Kia. Uh, I was, I was in house. I was corporate counsel at Kia, but I was, I was never the top lawyer there. My bad. Uh, oh no, no worries. It, it, it happened uh, all the time. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm your normal uh, Asian studies major who lived in China for several years during and after college uh, and came back to go to law school to study uh, international law, which is most people who go to law school to do that find out does not exist. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's a very common mistake uh, and one that I uh, uh, fell into like so many others. Uh, came out, went to uh, Holland and Knight, uh, where I was an associate doing complex commercial litigation and e-discovery. I really enjoyed being a litigator, uh, and I loved my my colleagues. Uh, but uh, the way we did a lot of things drove me a little batty. Uh, the lawyering part we were really good at. It was the delivery of legal services that just seemed off to me. Uh, and from what I could tell, it really wasn't a Holland and Knight problem. And I later confirmed this. It was an everywhere problem. This was just the big law model. Right. Uh, and so I thought, okay, the big problem is uh, the large law firms. And I, I had the opportunity to go in-house at Kia. Uh, I did. And uh, that was also uh, an amazing uh, experience. I came up with my legal technology audit. I started writing. I started speaking. Uh, and largely came to the conclusion that the, the number one impediment to change probably isn't outside counsel, but in-house counsel. Huh. Uh, that it, it's a buyer's market, and it has been for going on seven years now, and that if in-house counsel really wanted to change things, uh, we, and I say we because I, I have not officially gone from Kia yet, but I will by the time this podcast is aired, uh, uh, we could. And so but, maybe that's a good segue into the 
into the beginning, which is, I mean, how did you, how did you arrive at the point at Kia where you decided to start doing the legal tech audit? I I actually started working on it immediately uh, because one of the things about being in house counsel is a lot of the times you're hiring specialists who are much better in their area of law than you are. In fact, most of the time, most of the lawyers I worked with were far more experienced lawyers than me in the particular domains in which we were working. That was the entire point of hiring them. Uh, and so there, I could only go so far in judging them on their legal expertise. I, of course, did that. I exercised my best judgment. But uh, in terms of bringing value to my client, Kia Motors America, it was more about uh, the delivery of the legal services. So I assume there, there was an assumption that they would be effective. Uh, quality was kind of assumed. And so it's not so much about the legal quality as the, uh, the quality of delivery. So there's the legal services and then there's the delivery of those legal services. Right. And so that's interesting because a lot of people, when we start talking about technology, um, they start objecting that you know, lawyering is not about technology. It's about being a competent lawyer, and you don't have to be good at technology to be a competent lawyer. But I think what you're saying is, sure, but once you get to a certain threshold of good lawyering, then, then you can look for different different differentiators. And one of those things is efficiency with technology. Yeah, you, you reach a certain threshold level of competence, and comp- competence diminishes as a differentiating factor. Uh, it just it's just not that important uh, at a certain level. Uh, and that's especially true when you're deciding between lawyers who you've already decided are qualified uh, for a particular uh, matter. So uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be considering them unless they were good enough to do the work. Right. So uh, how, do you, how do you push through something like the audit? Both how do you get uh, Kia to say, okay, we're going to do this, and how do you um, how do you persuade outside counsel to do it? Well, and this is where I'm uh, grateful to Kia and probably and probably been uh, unintentionally unfair to them. They just let me do it. Oh, <laughs> uh, I said I want to do this, and they said okay, you can do it because I had my own kind of. We all had our own areas. Uh, and they said, in your area, you can, you run your area how you want to run it. And they just let me do it, and, and they were wonderful. And since that time, I've gained insight into a lot of other departments. And truly, unfairly to them, whenever I go out and talk about in-house counsel being uh, part of the problem, it everyone thinks that I'm just talking about Kia, when in fact... Kia put up with me uh, for four for four years. They let me do uh, uh, what I did. It doesn't mean that we always agreed one hundred percent on on everything. But if if you were building a hierarchy of progressive departments, the f- the fact that anyone knows my name is a testament uh, to where they rank. So convincing them wasn't hard and. Honestly, convincing outside counsel wasn't hard because I was the client. And that's the dynamic that gets gets lost. I, I remember being in a 
conference once and someone brought up flat fees and a, a in-house counsel from a rather large and a high-ranking in-house counsel uh i think he was a deputy gc or something uh weighed in and said oh such and such company tried uh, flat fees and their outside lawyers hated it mm -hmm. and he thought that was dispositive that because it displeased, because uh, outside counsel didn't like it as much, that it was therefore unworkable. Uh, again, it's a it's a buyer's market, and that that doesn't mean that in-house counsel can demand whatever they want, whenever they want, from whomever they want. But there is a lot more leverage there than gets used. Substantially more leverage there than gets used. Right. And so you put this thing out there and said, uh, uh, and just said, take it. And they, they did they did you get pushback on it or were they just okay? No, no. I mean the, I mean the the first reaction probably wasn't uh, spoken out loud, mm -hmm. which was, oh god, another silly client request. Right. <laughs> uh, but but then it was a, a complete lack of concern because. I was dealing with the partners, and they they labored under the myth of the digital native that younger people just know technology backwards and forwards because mm -hmm. they get Twitter accounts in utero. Right. <laughs> that's and, that's and, a problem, man. I you know I I hear that again and again, and I see that with older lawyers who think that they can rely on their younger associates to take care of the technology stuff, and it's. Nobody learns business technology uh, by using Twitter. Yes, and it's and so not only that, but they knew their associates to be uh, smart and hardworking and diligent and all kinds of other things that are absolutely true. And so they didn't think it was going to be a problem. It was only afterwards that all of a sudden, you know, the arguments came out about well, you know, that's not the most important thing, which. Right. Of course, it it isn't the most important thing, but that doesn't, but it still matters. Uh, and so they 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 were very very amenable to it. Well, but af so after you started doing it, though, the uh, it was a series of spectacular, more or less spectacular failures on the parts of the of outside counsel, right? Yes. Um, yeah, I. No one, not no one, there are very few people who are good at this stuff, and there's even fewer who are good across the board. And so it's not completely fair to say that it was spectacular failures uh, for everyone. There were, there were some, some lawyers and some firms who were really good in most areas, but then they had one area where they weren't. Uh, and the original legal tech audit is much more comprehensive than the piece that I've automated thus far. Okay, so that's what I was wondering because the one that the one that I took uh, was uh, Word, Excel, and Acrobat, and it was all pretty basic stuff. Like, you know, I by the second try, if you can't pass that, I think it's fair to say you're not very competent when it comes to technology. Um, but so, what additional things were in the one that you used? Oh well, so it <clears throat> I went in personally to the law firms. And I looked at uh, 
knowledge management practices, document management practices, uh, the, the use of things like document assembly, checklists, uh, delegation, uh, whatever kind of internal processes they had for allocating work uh, and making sure the right resources were doing the right kind of work. Uh, and so it was much more comprehensive. I wanted to understand how my work was going to be handled. And so I, I, I assumed for the sake of uh, the audit that the lawyer at the top really knew uh, his or her stuff and was going to do a great, ultimately do a great job that the briefs were going to be excellent, their legal research was ultimately going to be excellent, uh, that the, the positions we took were going to be defensible and well explained. So I assumed all that. And it's okay, that, that person is not going to be doing all of the work. That to get there, there's a lot of labor-intensive things that need to be done. Uh, and those things are going to be rolled up into the price. Uh, how, how, how are those being delivered? And so that's what I, it, it's, I think the, the closest analogy I've found is uh, supply chain management and how large, large, large companies uh, really want to know how things are being done at every point along their supply chain uh, because because it matters, and in a world of thin margins, uh, waste waste is uh, very, very expensive. And waste is also the easiest the easiest way to get improvements. It's lean principle number one: eliminate waste, because you can do everything you're already doing without changing anything, and get and and realize gains. Well, and it, you could say. I would like to save money, so please give me an inferior legal product. Yes. <laughs> but, but that doesn't that doesn't really get you what you need. So um, please don't do the research. Just fire a brief off out there based on what you're thinking at the moment. <laughs> exactly. Um, so okay. and that that actually brings up uh, fixed fees. Yeah. Of of which I am a fan uh, and, a, and a proponent. But people say, well, don't fix fees change all of this. Doesn't it stop mattering? And no, it probably shifts the 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 locus of concern, where the firm should now be more concerned about it than the client. Uh, but you're you're going to have two things with fixed fees: either prices are going to co converge, they're all going to be substantially similar, or they're going to diverge. And if they diverge you you want to figure out why you talk about you know inferior legal product you're going to want to know why one firm can offer you the same services at a substantially less cost uh, than another and it it could just it could be it could just be geography new york versus denver uh, uh it could be that one has better Knowledge, knowledge management and technology practices. They use technology to leverage uh, their institutional knowledge so they're able to deliver uh, high-quality services with much less labor inputs. Or they might 
be providing a lower quality service, meaning they're putting on lower value uh, personnel, or they're simply putting out lower quality work. And so if the prices diverge, you'll want to know why. If the prices converge, then you're going to, then you all of a sudden you have, again, you're only considering them if, if they're up to snuff. So quality isn't a good differentiator uh, in terms of the top level personnel. And now price isn't a differentiator. All right, well, what differentiators do you have? And this is, this is, if I have a, a larger mission, uh, that's it. To, to me, the, the LTA is a very, very small piece of a much larger metrics puzzle. What, what are the objective metrics we look at when making legal spend decisions? And, and, and you're going to, and people are certainly going to object, you know, they're going to go back to quality and stuff. But what you're trying to do is just say, let's figure out what's objective and figure out how to compare that. Right. Well, not, and before we get there, and I, I do think you can start to get into object, uh, objective discussions of quality, like with what Lex Machina is doing, mm -hmm. uh, in the, in the patent space. Uh, I, Ultimately, I would love to get there, but before before we get there again, I, I start with the lowest hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. you know, eliminate waste is by far the lowest. Let's assume, and I think you'll get in-house counsel to agree to this, that they are able to identify who uh, the lawyers who are good enough, uh, the the relationship partners who are good enough to deli to deliver ultimately the quality that they need, that they can narrow it down to uh, those particular partners who are able to do the work. And hopefully they will concede that it is very rare that there is only one lawyer in the entire world who can do the work. Yeah, you've talked about that, that the... Uh at, after a certain threshold, the lawyer actually is kind of irrelevant. Yeah, and so now, now that we've now that we've narrowed it down to a band, uh, to a group of of lawyers who can do the work, and we're deciding between them, we're not using quality as a differentiator, and it's hard to and you may or may not be able to use price as a differentiator. If you're doing, if you're using something like the GlaxoSmithKline reverse auction and you use it as a price discovery mechanism, there might be a, a large difference in price, but then again, you want to investigate why. But what you see in the Harvard case study uh, that they did on the GSK model, those prices converged. And now all of a sudden you don't have price as a differentiator. That doesn't mean it wasn't a useful exercise. It brings prices down appreciably. It's an amazing price discovery mechanism. It's amazing for cutting costs. It's just, okay, now you still have a group of firms that you're deciding among. And they don't just they don't simply choose the lowest price. That's not how they that's how they do it. And I don't think that's how they should do it. Uh, and so now now we have a band of, of pre-qualified firms with for all intents and purposes, equal prices. How do we decide among them? Who do we choose? And what can we look at beyond the relationship? 
because there, there should be advantages to incumbency. Uh, but we have a very weird world where right now in a lot of places the advantages to incumbency are essentially insurmountable and then they completely disappear when there's a changing of the guard in-house. Mm -hmm. Which suggests that it's more about relationships than it is the advantages of incumbency. Which incumbents, they're familiar with their business. Uh, they they probably met the business people. They know they know your abbreviations. They know your acronyms. They know they know where they've found particular data in past cases. There are lots of things that come with having a long-standing repeat relationship uh, with your outside counsel. I'm I'm not against that, uh, but at a certain point, it it certainly looks like we're like people are just handing over business to their friends and only to their friends. Right. Uh, and to to get away from that, uh, you have to have something other than the judgment of the lawyer who's handing out the work. Uh, and that's where we get into objective metrics. And to me, the the LTA is just one piece of a much larger metrics puzzle uh, where now that we've now that we've decided now that we're taking quality as a given what do we look at in terms of the delivery of legal services what what can we measure uh, and how can we measure it well and, so so l let me let me back up a little bit and just ask so for what you've been measuring to date uh, using the legal tech audit both the version that you did yourself and the version that um, anybody can do now. Um, oh, which, and which, by the way, the version you took. Yeah. Uh, you know that was that was the initial release, and there were some very valid questions about it. And I I I went I went back to the drawing board completely, uh, and the content is substantially similar, uh, but the sequencing and delivery mechanism have changed entirely. Cool. Uh, because no one is above reproach, and that includes me. Uh, and there were definitely areas that, that needed improvement, and hopefully we're getting there. Um, so what I was curious about is when you, um, when you gave the audit, um, how, how did you change the fees that, that Kia was willing to pay? I mean, some of that you probably can't talk a lot about, but... Oh, I mean, did you did you dock the fee by ten percent or twenty percent or how did uh, that so, work out? So it it was different depending on uh, the firms, and so two examples that I I can talk about, although only in the abstract. Uh, one firm uh, they were completely new to Kia; uh, they'd never done work for us before, and I, I gave I give the audit after we ne negotiate fees. So, because, and I'm actually writing an article about this right now about the rack rate being a complete fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, no one pays the rack rate, and so you have to nego you negotiate your discounts first, uh, and then you give the audit. And I reduced their rates across the board by five percent. Okay, if they just if they failed without anything else. Yes, and that and but but the agreement is it can be restored on passing a subsequent audit. Gotcha. Since then, uh, uh, I've actually started 
compiling the, the data from the, the automated version and uh, putting in some assumptions about how people, about how lawyers spend their time. And I'm actually finding an average uh, recommended write down of about 13%. Wow. Okay. Uh, so that was with that was with a firm with uh, with whom we had no relationship. There was another firm who was a long time incumbent, and again, it was a, it was much broader than just the facility with uh, particular uh, technology. They had by far the best knowledge management practices of any firm I looked at. By far. Uh, and it was just some other things. It was the associates using technology. It was also uh, their document management where there were issues. And with them, we, uh, and also their use of templates. I, they didn't use enough templates in a kind of document assembly approach to production of, of repeat documents. And we came up with a plan together to uh, put the associates through training, to, uh, to reform their document management system uh, and to, to introduce more use of templates. And there was no cutting of fees whatsoever. Now, what did happen is the fees that we paid them, because we have a long-standing relationship with them, went down. Uh, but not because of any kind of reduction in their rates. Not only that, but to me, the most gratifying thing was I had... I had a couple of their lawyers uh, say to me in private uh, that they were grateful because they'd known forever that they needed to clean up things, just like how they're storing files electronically and where and making sure they were in a central repository that the entire group could get to, mm -hmm. just as an example. Uh, an another was uh, coming up with a, a template for... Standard, standard objections. There are only so many objections to discovery. Uh, there's no reason they need to be rewritten every single time. Uh, in fact, you know, one of the models you could have is a lawyer going through and saying number one, number three, number six, number eight in terms of the objections and the word processor putting them in. Right. And all you, had to do, all you have to do is you write the template once and then you refine it if you think it needs to be refined. And so those two things, you know, they said, thank you. It's, there's, a, there's a lot of BS work that we don't have to worry about anymore because of that. And it, that stuff is terrible to do. It's mind-numbing. Right. What, what, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to punish lawyers. I want to set them free. Uh, there's a reason that associates are consistently reported as the least happy professionals in the United States. And it's because so many of them are chained to their desk 18 to 20 hours a day, uh, largely focused on drudgery. Right. Well, and, and there's no uh, there's no motivation to change. Momentum is pretty powerful, especially in law, until a client comes along and says, I'm not going to pay you unless you change. Which oh, yeah. Ch ch change, is, change is expensive. It, let's not pretend like it, it, it. you can just snap your fingers and, and it'll be different. Uh, doing things like going to training, that takes time away from work. Right. Setting up temp templates, 
you're not going to be able to charge that through to the client. Not only that, but if they save you time, either of them, then that reduces if you're on the billable hour, which is still, what, eight, nine, 85 to 90% of the market last time I looked. You're actually going to be reducing the amount of money that comes in. Now, your realizations are probably going to go up. Um, it may ultimately help your, your uh, profits, and it can have a profound impact on your structure, uh, your staff headcount costs, etc., but uh, it's it's not as if it's automatic. Uh, you know, just because it's obvious doesn't mean it's simple, and just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. Right. Yep. It, it's there's, and and which is why somebody's got to come along and say, "Do this, or I'm not going to give you money." <laughs> yeah, or I'm going to give you less money. Yes, yeah. exactly. And that's and that's why ultimately it's 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 up to clients. And is your is your vision for the legal tech audit going forward that it will come closer to resembling the sort of evaluation that you were doing on a case by case basis beforehand? I mean, I know you uh, can't do all of that, but yeah. So not not the probably not what's termed the the legal tech audit right now, just because a lot of it does uh, require uh, inspections, but. Uh, just because I may not be able to achieve the dream by myself, I still think it it can be achieved. So, oh, to me the the bright the brightest spot uh, in the last uh, year or two, and it's it's now finally official, is uh, that the ACC uh, has authorized their first section new section in a decade. Not only that, but it is the first section uh, that will admit uh, non-lawyers, which is a term I hate, but uh, it's, it's the legal ops section. Mm -hmm. And so that, uh, so so people who come from a technical background and who who've a, or a finance background or a procurement background and are now working embedded in a large legal department. There's now a group for that uh, within the ACC that comes together. And these are the people who are probably going to be most responsible for legal departments, use of technology, use of metrics, um, as well as looking at outside counsel and their use of technology and their use of metrics. And there, there are multiple ways that an organization like that, uh, in which I will be involved until I'm no longer in-house, uh, but with which I will still have uh, several uh, connections even when I'm, I leave in-house. That group, uh, so one of the things we started is a billing guidelines project, where we are collecting guidelines uh, from hundreds of the largest corporations in the world and seeing what they do. And part of that is just finding what they all do and coming up with model language so that there's a kind of template for it. But what's most interesting to me is looking for the outliers, looking for those, those companies that are doing something a little bit different, a little bit extra. Uh, a really good example um, is a company that actually... Uh, 
says, we expect you to be good with technology and uh, we reserve the right to audit your use of it. And I know that that company recently did uh, an audit of that nature on uh, PDFs where they looked at documents filed on their behalf by their firms and looked at redaction and whether redaction was done properly. <laughs> I bet uh, they which, weren't super pleased with the results. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not, I haven't looked that deep. Uh, I was happy to hear that because redaction is on the LTA. Yeah. Uh, but looking for those kinds of things and introducing those concepts into the model billing guidelines. And we want to turn it into something where there's kind of a model and a discussion of the different clauses and the different options, but and then also a, a document assembly component to it where the members, if they want to generate new billing guidelines, can go through and they have a menu of choices to make. And I think that's a really good way to get con new concepts. So like that, that audit, which by the way had, as far as I know, nothing to do with me. Uh, I learned about it recently. I'd had no contact with the company. Uh, uh, and I obviously I thought it was great. Uh, uh, or uh, another one is velocity of timekeeping. I don't, I don't know if you've heard of Viewabill. Yeah, uh, definitely. They sponsored our first podcast, in fact. Oh, well, you know, simple concept, profound results. Uh, the the time between performing a task and recording it has a, a large effect on how much time is recorded. Uh, and there's actually differing opinions on what the effect is. There are some places, K&L Gates, for example, is very strict on getting their people to enter time. Uh, I think within 24 or 48 hours, something like that. But very, very strict. Uh, and I believe it's premised, the premise is there's a lot of time we're not capturing. Because when you go back to reconstruct your time at the end of the month, you just don't remember that you did this, 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 and this. Although I think Viewabill's numbers suggest that the opposite is true. You tend yes. to exaggerate it when you Viewabill, go back and do it. Viewabill's numbers, my own use of Viewabill, everything I've seen thus far suggests that the people tend to exaggerate. Mm -hmm. My my hypothesis, my guess is there it's probably a mixture because what you have is people missing a lot of little of the little things they do. Mm -hmm. uh, so there might be a, a day where they did work for five clients, but at the end of the month, they only record it for four. But then that's more than made up for by inflating it for particular clients. And so if you have a policy on velocity, uh, you can, you can uh, avoid that. Uh, and and there's, there's a few different components to having that, pol that policy. One is actually writing the policy. Another is enforcing it. And so... How do you monitor it? Is it viewable? Is it uh, some other technology? And then how do you enforce it? And so with something like the legal ops groups, we can go to the Serengeti's uh, and, and the tie metrics of the world and say, look, here are model policies that we want to be able to force, enforce within our e-billing systems. And
And because of the collective power of the groups, I, I suspect that they're going to be very willing uh, to build in that, that functionality. So I think we, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead and finish. Go ahead. No, no, you can go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think we've been talking about it the whole time, but before we, before we close, I wanted to make sure that um, you told us a little bit about your plans for cost control. And I, I think we've been talking about it, but I was hoping you could sort of bring it all together and, and tell us what you plan to be doing with your new company. Yeah. So, uh, cost control is, uh, the, the main offering is the LTA, uh, in its current form. Uh, and then I'm also, uh, going to be doing consulting. Um, in right now I'm in the middle of working on my master's certificate in Lean Six, Six Sigma. Uh, and I, w I want to do a process improvement, uh, you know, waste elimination and spend management consulting uh, for in-house departments. I don't want. I'm. Not, I'm not so interested in the large extended projects that require lots, lots of bodies. And that's not to diminish them. Putting in an e-billing system is really labor-intensive and a lot of work, and faces a lot of technical challenges, and yet kind of has to be done. Uh, I would rather avoid those extended projects and and really consulting. Uh, go in, uh, folk, you know, do do a spend analysis, focus in on a few different processes, do a waste walk, uh, bring bring the stakeholders together, and come up with ways to eliminate waste and improve everyone's lives. Uh, and then be gone. Uh, I, I don't want to embed myself anywhere. Uh, and th one of the nice things about only being interested in, in low-hanging fruit is it's, it's rare that you're going to overreach and fall on your face. And, and with that, I, you know, I don't know everything about everything about everything. Uh, my hope is that I will stretch, but not ever pretend uh, like I'm capable of doing that, which I'm not. And I found that's actually really hard not to to to, fi to find the balance between underselling yourself and overselling yourself. Right. I'm, I don't I don't want to make promises like I'm going to come into a legal department and cut their spend by sixty percent. Um. It's more. It's more like come in and uh, find areas where I can cut it uh, five percent and make people uh, happier. And part of the, I think most of that will probably be process, and some of it will be technology. Recommending the introduction of various technologies, whether it's document assembly or or e-signatures or uh, you know automated contract analysis. Uh, there are so many different ways right now that people are spending more time than they need to. Uh, I mean, it sounds like what you're essentially planning to do is some of the same consulting that you were doing with some of the firms that you worked with at Kia in order to get them to the point where you didn't need to cut their rates. Exactly. It sounds like it's ba maybe that's the model that you're basing it on. Yeah, although I would say my, my focus is more is more on starting with the in-house departments 
and then going out to their firms and starting with the firms. So I'm I'm open to uh, you know whomever wants to pay me. Right. Uh, <laughs> although it's one of my biggest problems is it's not about the money. If you remember, I almost gave the I tried to give the original LTA away for free. In fact, I did give it away for free. I signed it over to Suffolk for free, and we worked together to automate it. Uh, and it was only at the end, uh, when we we're getting near launch, they said we cannot offer this at the scale that you're that that's being uh, conceived uh, for free. Because believe it or not, people want to get paid for stuff like <laughs> server space and and maintenance and admin. Right. And if you want to know my my impetus for going out on my own, it was that the only way to realize that particular dream was to make it a for-profit entity. And I just, I don't, I didn't have enough bandwidth to run a for-profit an- entity, which again, to Kia's credit, I told them about and they allowed me to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and do my job and be a father to my two kids. Uh, there was, I just didn't have the bandwidth and at, at a certain point, something had to give and it's a little insane that the thing that the the thing was my full-time job right. um, and uh, who knows uh, eight months from now I could be looking for another one uh, because apparently the, these kids like to eat uh, <laughs> uh, but but for right now uh, I'm just I'm following my passion which as sick as it's uh, sounds is uh, creating a more efficient legal marketplace, uh, and knowing because if I if I didn't try now, I I probably was never going to try, and I'd rather on my deathbed uh, uh, regret having failed than uh, continue to wonder about what could have been. Well, that sounds awesome. Um, so. Good luck to you, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. This episode of the Lawyerist Podcast is brought to you by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answered the phones for my law practice for a couple of years, and I regularly got compliments from callers, clients, potential clients, opposing counsel, about the great receptionists from Ruby. Um, but I also loved being a Ruby customer because of the way they treated me. So quick story about why that is. When my first daughter was born, um, I pulled up the Ruby app on my phone and I updated my status saying, hold my calls for 48 hours. Um, and I said that I was in the hospital <laughs> with giving birth to my daughter. Or my wife was giving birth to my daughter. Um, and um, I didn't think anything more of it. They held my calls. It all went smoothly. And when I got back to my office a few days later, there was a beautiful little care package waiting for me from Ruby. Um, Whoever had fielded that status update saw that I was in the hospital um, for the birth of my daughter, and they sent, you know, a rattle and a onesie and and a a bib and a couple, some really nice things. It wasn't Ruby branded. It was just a really nice care package for the baby. And it was this really touching thing. And it was so touching that I'm still telling people about it years later. Um, Ruby still answers the phones for Lawyerist. And I have to say that we've gotten great service from them throughout this time. I, I don't get care packages anymore, obviously, because I'm not having kids anymore. But it's just been a wonderful experience. 
So I think you should give it a try. And since Ruby will answer your phones for free for 14 days uh, during the trial period, you've really got nothing to lose. So uh, I think you should go get started. And you can do that by going to callruby.com lawyerist. And if you do, Ruby will even waive the setup fee if you decide to become a customer. Catch us next week for episode 12, when we talk with public interest lawyer Ellie Krug about transgender lawyering, having litigated as both a man and a woman. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>